You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Uh, hello, everyone. I have a martini here if anybody would like one. And uh, freelance writer Rob Zachney. Hello. I'm squared away with my Jameson. Thank you. And I have an Anchor Steam. Something I haven't there you had. go. There we go. Yeah. It's a, apparently it's been made in San Francisco since 1896. You know why they call it Anchor Steam? Why they call it Steam? It's because they used to actually cool it and ferment it on the roof of the building, and so the building looked like it was always steaming. I did I've not done, know. I've, I've done the tour. It's fascinating. You could lead that tour now, if that's the highlight. <laughs> if, 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 if that's a big punchline, it ends with, and they no, the, ferment the on the is, roof. Maybe the I'll just get my Sixers from the cooler then. The uh, the highlight is standing there drinking all the beer. That's definitely the highlight. Yeah. Maybe I should do that the next time in San Francisco. Not the next time, because I'll be in San Francisco next week, I think. Uh, but the next time I have time in San Francisco. Uh, so, Julian, you haven't been on the show in a while. What have you been up to? I know. I've been busting my balls. It's just been like work city, uh, which is, you know, that's a good thing because I like food. Food. I'm a big fan of food and like paying my mortgage. So Indeed, that's all good. But it's just been I've been traveling for work and all sorts of stuff like that. But you've been doing a great, great job without me. I mean, last week's show was a barn burner. That was awesome. We were just saying that because we had Lara Krieger on, and we all know you're, you're sweet on her. I am sweet on Lara Krieger, but you know <laughs> what? It was still a great show. I mean, we had such different opinions. We usually we all just violently agree with each other about most things. No, it was a really good show, and I'm really glad we did it. And I do want to get uh, each of the ladies on sometime later to talk about not gendered stuff because uh, they all did a wonderful job. And hopefully, I know at least one of them is going to try to make it to Pax East. So we're going to see if we can maybe do a on-site show or something. Since I know you and Rob are going to be there, awesome. that would be awesome. Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, so I just got back from Sweden, and I did think, well, and Tom suggested, why don't you just talk about what you saw in Stockholm? And it's like, well, then it's just me talking about what I saw in Stockholm. Well, I, I want to hear what this, this extravagant trip was. Uh, it was the Paradox, uh, Interac- Paradox Interactive, makers of the uh, Europa Universalis games, and probably the number one strategy publisher in Europe now, if not the world, just flew in a bunch of us uh, to see their 2010 lineup. So I got to meet, you know, people from GameSpot and IGN and PC Gamer. It's always nice to meet your colleagues and uh, see, you know, Victoria 2 and talk to the Swords of the Stars guys and Lead and Gold. Uh, Magica is the game, though. That's the most impressive Magica game. Is the game. Magica is the game. It's like uh, <laughs> Castle Crashers and Diablo rolled into one. Wow. Okay. So uh, I think that's going to be the big uh, sleeper hit for 2010. I, uh, I have not even heard of this game. Neither had I. Um, they give a very bland presentation as well. But then you see it in action, and it's, oh, yeah, I can see how this could be really, really cool. Did you get a chance to play with it at all? Or I, didn't get a ha- I didn't get a hands-on, but I saw other people doing the hands-on. Uh, I was just kind of dazed because I had one hour's sleep on the flight over. And then they took us to a medieval restaurant with way too much mead. Uh, oh god! I hate is this that like stuff. A, like a medieval times kind of medieval restaurant? No, it was a real legitimate look. They you know, they dressed in it wasn't medieval times. It was you know they had fire eaters and nobody put a crown on your head though. Right? All meat, 
and slattern wenches dancing. Very, you know, traditional medieval Viking stuff. Uh, it would be bad to be a vegan, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was the only the only <laughs> real vegetable was sauerkraut and a salad and a million kinds of meat. So you went over sleepless, then you got hammered, and then you went and saw a bunch of games. So you're you're really trusting your opinions. Now. Well, although I saw the games before I got hammered, many of them, and uh, some and some the next day, and it wasn't actually that hammered. And then we went out and talked hockey at an Irish pub, going to Stockholm. What <laughs> just the second night they took us to a I am not kidding Cajun restaurant. How was it? And then an Irish pub. Well, a Cajun restaurant, the food was okay, except they saw our big party and said, okay, there are 20 of you. You can only order these five things off the menu. Mm-hmm. So that kind of took the ribs off the plate. Uh, the Texas chili was great. The company was good. Paradox puts on a really good show. Uh, full disclosure, they paid for, like, everything. Um, I think I paid for one taxi while I was there in their moon money. Uh, so, but other than that, it was, uh, it was good. It was fun time. Saw a lot of neat stuff. I have some, some of the games I have some issues with. Um, but Paradox put the event on in style and I do want to thank them for flying me over and, uh, a bunch of my colleagues for it. It was not, it was not a cheap flight, uh, for them. I saw the Expedia bill. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys went all out. They do, they do under the new one, the next one probably in New York, which I think is probably be a good idea. That's a lot more viable because, I mean, I, you know, as you well know from the magazine days back when there used to be magazines, yep. um, you know, a lot of places just won't they, – they flat out won't take publishers paying to get their staff writers anywhere, yep. uh, which means the only way that they can do that kind of story is sometimes to sort of let a freelancer essentially take the trip yep. and then report it more as a feature than as a review. Uh, but, but even those days are kind of gone because, you know, who's left? Yeah, it's it's rough out there. Uh, and I was covering it for for Crispy Gamer, which added to Crispy the irony. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was th- the day I arrived. I represented Crispy Gamer. The next day it was a zombie site that had been shut down. <laughs> so I was like, "Well, who am I writing you know, this for now?" It would be funnier. It would be funnier and more interesting if it was actually a zombie site. Like Crispy Gamer is now all about zombies. <laughs> it that is would be a, way more fun. It is a zombie site because today they have new content on the front page, and it's an article from 2008. They're just running <laughs> so-called classic content. That's beautiful. So they're just going to like hit the refresh button on the database. I have no idea what they're doing. Up. Whatever it is is evil uh, and. Not good as far as I'm concerned. But we do have a topic for this week, a real topic. Uh, some picking up on something we've talked about many times and some of us coming out of last week's podcast. Uh, the issue of narrative and stories in strategy games, like RTS campaigns, uh, strategy games that have worlds. And I mean not player driven narratives. I want to talk about, you know, the civilization games where there's player driven narratives or, uh, Europe and Rosales, once again, player-driven narrative, but a narrative imposed from outside, a designer sense of narrative and story and strategy games. Is there a place for that? Um, This is partly driven from Tom's heretical comment on last week's show that StarCraft has a bad story or something to that effect, and it just doesn't work, and that RTSs can't tell stories. Though I can certainly remember story-based campaigns in RTSs that I've actually enjoyed. Uh, So, Julian, I know this is a topic you're interested in uh, to some extent. You have a lot of experience with, first, a wide range of games. You're certainly uh, a more a broader gamer than I am. What do you think is the status, the stature, or the place of narrative? Uh, well, authorial I, I mean, narrative in strategy. 
I, I think that you, I think that most strategy games kind of need to either, um, crap or get off the pot. I, I think the problem with most strategy game storylines is that they're kind of afterthoughts. They're like, oh, okay, well, we know we have to have a single player game, so we'll string together, you know, 25 missions that are really 25 missions of tutorial for the most part. Uh, and we'll make it about the young bucks, you know, colonel or young buck, whatever, uh, you know, strategist who, you know, slowly but surely becomes more valuable in the war. I mean, have we not seen that like a thousand times? And, and that to me is, that's just sort of a boring crutch. And in that case, the story is really there just to make the tutorial more palatable. Um, I, I actually kind of, I hate to say this, I kind of agree with Tom that I don't think that the StarCraft storyline was any great shakes. Um, I mean, if anything, I thought the manual, if I'm remembering right, for StarCraft did a better job presenting the storyline than most of what happened in it. When I think of story in strategy games, I mean, I tend to think about like the totally cheesy stuff that the Command & Conquer series has done. I mean, they're at least, they're, whether the stories are good or bad, they're at least putting some real effort into telling those stories. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. And I actually, although I actually find most of the command and conquer and the red alert stuff to be uh, not strategically all that interesting. I mean, I haven't seen much new there lately. That's made me all excited about it. Um, I actually kind of dig all the cheese ball stuff. So I, I kind of get into that. I mean, uh, see, I am a hundred percent the opposite. And, um, I don't know. I, I really thought Star. I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that you don't think StarCraft had a good story. I think it had a very good story. Um, I would I would agree that the way the story is told within the game is not particularly good. I'm totally on board with um, Tom's column for Crispy Gamer, where you know your RTS story mission is not very good. Um, you build a base, you wipe out the enemy base, or maybe it takes place indoors, and that's about the only variety. Um, but the actual story in StarCraft. Um, I don't think I've ever seen people get as involved with an RTS story as uh, they got involved with StarCraft and Brood War. Um, I mean, how, how can you not just the, the Brood War intro cinematic and the story arc that, that launches, the UED's intervention, um, that's, that's great storytelling. Uh, you know, there's hubris, there's betrayal. Um, I far more sincere and far more interesting, I think, than sort of the cornball stuff in the uh, Command and Conquer series. Uh, I mean, maybe it just didn't. Maybe it just didn't do it for me. I mean, I I'm not a, I'm not the world's biggest StarCraft fan in general, and so maybe I just uh, you know, maybe that just poisons the well for me a little bit. I mean, to be fair, I think that um, I think Brood War did it better than the original StarCraft, and I played more StarCraft than I played of Brood War. Um, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm willing to go that far, but but I'm actually more interested in... I mean, when I, when I was thinking about this topic, the thing that I kept coming back to was that that sort of half-baked build we played of the Lock and Load game, Troy. Do you remember yeah, that? Very well. Where, where the, 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 the infamous Walker debacle. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> And, and one of the interesting things about that, and, and you know, we didn't play a game that was you know finished enough right. to really have a lot of opinions about the game. But one of the things that he's very clearly trying to do is take this really traditional sort of hex-based squad leader-esque uh, strategy game, uh, you know, sort of tactical, uh, you know, uh, squad-based game, um, and in the middle of that, start layering in a story so that in the right. middle of missions, in the middle of a scenario. 
things happen and they're essentially cut scenes and narrative that gets told based on like, oh, well, you know, you've uh, taken over this building. Now you have to go save this little girl that you just found. And that changes the nature of the mission while you're on it. That, while I don't think it was particularly well implemented at that point, mm-hmm. I find that to be much more interesting. And that's the kind of stuff that I would like to see in strategy games that are trying to tell a story is instead of saying, okay, you know, your mission is to accomplish goal X. And if you accomplish goal X, then the story advances and here's your cutscene, and here's your setup for the next thing where you have to succeed at this mission to establish goal X. Um, I would much rather see this kind of intramission uh, changing the strategic dynamic based on the story. That I find interesting, but I can't think of any games that have really done it. I don't have, haven't we seen that in RTSs? I was thinking we, lots of RTS campaigns, missions, I can't think of many right offhand, have the, you know, you're told you're doing one thing and then you run into a scripted event. And the scripted event says, oh no, you have to go to the other side of the map. Or this betrayal yeah. stuff you happen in a mission. How is that? You know, so you just run into a building, and now a girl pops up, and you have to save her. How is that any different uh, than you know your mission objectives just changing in the whim uh, of the author? And I'm sure we've seen that in our team. Well, uh, hang on. I mean, the way I understand it, um, I, I don't really remember the lock and load show, the specifics of the lock and load show that that clearly. But I thought it was that sometimes an event would happen, and it would change your mission. Other times it or a different event would happen. That there is this much more organic sense of the battle space and things happening within yeah. it. Whereas, like, sort of what you're describing is those bait and switch missions that are in every RTS, where it's yes. like, go yep. take this hill. Oh wait, there's a huge, gigantic enemy secret base just off, you know, to the side. Deal with that instead. Um, you know, you see that mission over and over again, or right. you do a secondary right. objective where it doesn't really matter if you can com- can complete it. But I was really excited by the idea of, if not necessarily rescuing the little Russian girl, um, I was really excited by the idea of being in the middle of a mission, you know, having a plan unfolding, and then having an event that might or might not happen um, suddenly completely change your mission profile. That struck me as really exciting. Well, there, I think. It, I don't think it did it quite as glamorously and wonderfully as you're describing it. I agree, that would be awesome. But I don't think it's quite there. Well, to be, to be but, fair, we don't know where it's at yet. Uh, we have no idea. As Bruce would remind us, the game was supposed to come out uh, three years ago. So. Right. so so who knows what actually happens there. But um, but, but I think, you know, the, the part of the problem is that in most single player campaigns the the connection to character is pretty limited mm-hmm. you know it tends to most of the in most strategy games you the character are essentially god general of some sort um and one of the things that i was thinking about was dawn of war 2 which i actually enjoyed the single player game from dawn of war 2 more than i enjoyed multiplayer by far Mm-hmm. Partially because I really did feel invested in these few characters, and they were pretty thinly drawn. It's, I'm not going to try to sell anybody on the idea that this was some sort of epic narrative feat that they accomplished in the game. But I felt well, much the, more yeah, there wasn't they wasn't they weren't exactly writing Jane Austen here. I mean, no, these are exactly, and and they, you know there were little interstitial, you know, mostly text in between missions. So I I cannot try to create a, a defense of like amazing narrative in Dawn of War Two. 
But I can say that I felt much more connected to that story than I often do in something that's been very, very well written um, because there is that connection to character in the campaign because the 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 way they structured that game, which is it's about individuals. So is that connection to character, though, or is that connection to the fact that you're dealing with a small squad? And I never felt like I knew any of my people besides the role they played. You know, I have the sniper dude, so he's the sniper dude. He never became whatever the sniper dude's name was. Uh, for me, Cyrus. Uh, thank you. See, see, so I obviously felt a connection to him. If I can remember his name after all, yeah. you know, a year or whatever yeah, and, it was, I, and I couldn't. Um, am, am I just broken, or because I, I understand? I mean, I actually like the campaign too, and I've actually gone back to play it. Um, something I very rarely do with RTS campaigns, and I've appreciate it, but not for its character, for how focuses on the small squad stuff, which the game does so well. And the set the set pieces are just so nice. That yes, yes. it is a string of missions, but it's a string of well done missions that make sense within the game world they have created. Um, right. it's every RTS campaign is pretty much the same. You know, you start off being limited to build very few units and then eventually give you more and more and more and access to bigger toys and bigger toys until you get the whole thing. Um, and that followed that reasoning as well, but it just seemed to make more sense within the game space. Uh, I wonder how much of the issue with bad RTS campaigns is really an issue of people just don't know how to make this tut- these tutorial levels interesting. Hmm. Well, I think uh, another problem is that the conventions of RTS storytelling, I think, are really hostile to the conventions of good storytelling. Um, <laughs> For instance, I mean, every RTS, yeah, has that introduction where, um, you know, welcome to the armed forces, soldier. Oh, and you, yeah, they give you they give you some, you know, little command, and you go wipe out like a supply depot, and they treat you like you're Julius Caesar or something like that, and then you wipe out a slightly bigger base the next mission, and you do this over and over again, and yet somehow the missions keep getting harder, and the stakes keep getting higher, and everything's getting more desperate, except. You're sitting there and you're thinking, I, I've just won 14 missions in a row. Um, you know, how much more ass can we kick? Um, and you, you just get sort of desensitized to victory, um, which I think I think takes you out of the story. And it's very rare to have an RTS that successfully ha- has has a satisfactory arc uh, because they're so busy trying to introduce you to bigger and better challenges and better units. So, you know, I keep changing the subject every five minutes because I have like a hundred different ideas and none of them are any good. But um, what about what about the more Japanese type, you know, really sort of tactical role playing genre? Because I still consider those things to be strategy games, really. I mean, I I, you should have been here last week. I know Um, I I, we could have talked about Final Fantasy forever. Um, (laughs) No, but no, I'm thinking about things like Jean d'Arc. Which I found to be, I, I I played the heck out of that game. I really loved it. And as goofy and stupid as it was, which I will fully admit it was goofy and stupid, in all the ways that so many Japanese games end up feeling goofy and stupid to me. I mean, you're you're fighting with lions and things like that. As Jean Dark, as Jean Dark did historically, historically, she yes, many with lions. magic lions, yes, with magic lions and wizards. Um, but but. I still found the story of that to be really entertaining to the point where long after I got bored with the core strategy elements of it, I kept playing it because I wanted to finish it. I actually wanted to like see what happened because it was getting interesting. 
Um, now maybe that just makes me a sap and makes me stupid, but to me that's, that's the direction I'd actually like to see in the single player components of my more Grognardian strategy games. So how would that, that real connection to character? Which, so could it be you just like the, the goofy stuff? That this is something, cause you say you like the goofy command and conquer, uh, games. Um, and you know, I, 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 I like the goofy parts of it. I actually don't think the games are all that. Right. But, but as far as the story, I mean, you like the goofy story, you like Kukan hamming it up or whatever. Um, and you say this is a goofy game with some goofy elements. Could it be you just have this, I don't know, postmodern, ironic approach to, to narrative? Fetish, fetish goofiness? Maybe. Um, I, maybe, maybe. But I, I, I don't think that that's my... I, I think I appreciate could, good Yeah, Because you never struck me as that guy. No, I'm I'm not really that guy. I think that's coincidental. It's just that these two examples I'm coming up with, you know, happen to be stupid, goofy stuff. Yeah, like so that. I'm not that familiar with Jean d'Arc. It's a PSP game. It's a PSP game. It uh, is a well, fairly standard tactical RPG where right. you're doing, you know, turn based. You have uh, I can't remember how many, like four to six guys on the screen at a time out of a stable of guys that you could have on your squad and individual missions there'll be requirements like sometimes you have to have jean like the lead character and sometimes you can't have jean but then you can mix and match the rest of your little party um and so there's a there's sort of almost a a collectible card game element to it there where you're constantly trying to figure out what to bring onto the battlefield and balance out and people have different abilities etc right. um and then it plays out on a fairly standard kind of advanced wars-esque turn-based tactics game you know that you get individual missions to advance the story to the next set of cutscenes and people crying in the rain but what is it about that that makes the story work for you that's that's what i'm not completely getting here well no it's not the gameplay that makes the story work to me it was actually the opposite the story to me is what made me suffer through the ending the end game itself right because this was because it is a quote-unquote role-playing game even though there's not any character development that you can control um there was all of this time, money, energy invested in creating the story arc for Jean and her little band of goofballs. Um, so, you know, so it's tons of scripting and some voice acting and lots of anime. And, you know, they they approach the story development clearly as a huge part of game development. Mm-hmm. Most of the time in an RP in a strategy game, that seems like an afterthought. While this is on my mind, then, tying into that, a game where it wasn't an afterthought, where the story informs the gameplay and the situations you encounter, the Myth series. Yes. Ah, Um, yes. I don't think think I've ever been as involved in an RTS, and I know that's more a real-time tactical game, but, you know, nonetheless, I'll just use the term RTS. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever been as involved in a story, and I don't think I've ever seen the story carried through to the missions as well as I've seen in that game. Could you elaborate Um, on that? Oh, absolutely. The way the way it is in the myth in the myth series is that the the story is sort of driving the situations you encounter, and because that you're not tied to the base building conceit, um, the missions sort of unfold through a series of scripted events across a fixed battle area. So, I mean, you'll have these outstanding missions. Um, you know, there's great, like, last stand missions, right, where I think there's a mission called, like, Across the Scamander or something, where it's pouring rain, and you have to hold these two these two fjords, uh, these two fjords across a river, and 
you know, your best units, your dwarves, don't work well in the rain because they rely, rely on explosions. And wave after wave keeps hitting you. Another mission is you have to hold a mountaintop, and you are fighting an army that's been bewitched. So it's your units um, attacking you. And I don't know, between the voice acting and the atmosphere and the story, I, just, I think the entire thing came together really beautifully to keep it fresh in every mission and to really make it feel like... I was doing something. I wasn't just, you know, the guy behind the mouse that the game was trying to make feel awesome. I really did feel attached to my soldiers, like a part of this mission. Um, and that's that's been really unusual for me well, in strategy. But, but a big part of that was, at least in, in um, what was the third one called? Wolf something or other? Um, Wolfage. That, and I think in the one before that, which was Soul, Soul Blighter. Yeah. Getting that right? Quick, yep. get Google. Um, that, that, and this isn't unique to the series at all, but all of your units always retained all their experience, right? So, so that if you were really careful and really paid attention, you could finish the game with units that you started the game with and play them all the way through and they get more experienced. And, and that, I think, again, helps with that investment in the game and that helps with narrative. It does, and actually, it, but it also tied into the gameplay itself, right? Because the units would get better and better. So if you weren't husbanding your troops well, you would get to a mission with a bunch of rookies, and it would be hellaciously difficult because they simply weren't able to perform the right. way they needed to be able to perform. The, ga- the story called for a group of veterans to be there, and if you, if you sucked it up, you weren't going to have those guys. Well, let me let me uh, let me toss another example of of a, of a RTS that I think has actually succeeded in in being very story focused, and and that's Brutal Legend, which I know not everybody on this podcast was a big fan of, but the the reason that I love Brutal Legend was the story. I mean, almost entirely. I mean, I had fun with the other stuff, but to me, that was all about playing through the story, and I had no interest in playing it after I'd finished the storyline. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of examples. Yes. Yeah, not, not currently, you're right. I'm sorry, I'm a PC gamer, so I'm just, I'm just bitter about the entire experience. Tons of games that have great stories, uh, kind of separate from their mechanics. I mean, that's a great example where, yeah, I mean, game experience for your units, that's a gameplay thing. It isn't really tied to the story uh, in very many ways. I mean, the dwarf unit you take with you through the entire game isn't, you know, a plot central character. I mean, that's just an experience unit you carry to the end, like it would in any other war game. Myth is a real-time war game, is what it comes down to. You have a fixed number of units and you play through it. It's a real-time war game. Um, I think of something like Sacrifice. Another great game with a great story, uh, wonderful acting, good plotting, good setting. Um... But, you know, what you actually do in each mission is only peripherally related to this art story they're telling. I mean, you're, you win the mission, and then there are only certain things you can do or certain possible outcomes. Basically, you, yeah, the, the gameplay actually becomes the unlock for the story. Right. Which is really most of the time what happens. So is this part of the problem with strategy games? Uh, where an RPG, you know, since it's character-centered, um, there isn't the issue of separating, you know, the story uh, from the mechanics, because in many ways the mechanics are a big part of the story. I mean, you can have an RPG certainly without a story, as we've seen uh, in well, in NetHack, for example, doesn't really have a story to it besides go and get the thingy, right? right. Uh, which is, I guess, that's the Ur story. But there we have it. Uh, <laughs> oh, seriously, that's what stories are. That's, 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 that's funny. That's very fun. Uh, so, uh, is that one of the problems with strategy games and strategy gamers? Is that they are We've often described strategy games as systems, 
And what makes a strategy game unique is that it is really a system, and you're learning a system and mechanics. That is this obsession with systems and mechanics that makes a good strategy game. Is that what is getting in the way of finding a way to integrate uh, mechanics and narrative? Almost mm. certainly. Um, I mean, my, my first thought as you're saying that is is that the system works because it sort of it almost runs itself, right? You and the system, you you play the system, and the system is set up to work a certain way. But storytelling requires, you know, sort of the hand of God reaching down there and arranging events to come together a certain way, which is, you know, com- completely opposite to the idea of the elegant system. Um, so I think, I, yeah, I think it would be very, very difficult to create a game that satisfied both on a on a narrative and a systemic level. Uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, why 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 are we saying that that's any different than creating a first person shooter with a compelling narrative? I mean, that's it's it's the same dichotomy between the gameplay system and the story you're telling with it. No, no, no. But the, the a shooter is hardly a system. A shooter is a guy in a hallway who sees the world over the barrel of a gun. Um, and the story basically points you down the wow, hallway that was and you said with said with such disdain. No, I, <laughs> I, I love shooters. If we want to, we want to talk about you know shooters for three moves ahead. That'd be that'd be awesome. Um, Not going to happen, but anyway. But um, no, I, I just don't think you could you could say a shooter is a system in remotely the same way that you know EU three is, for instance. I I mean I guess I <clears throat> I don't know. I think you would I think you would find people who play you know eleven hours of modern warfare a day. Talking mostly about the system, about this, about the single player campaign or the multiplayer. No, like about about the system of the game, right? The system of a strategy game is fundamentally the same. Well, most of the time, is the same system for the single player game and the multiplayer game, with notable exceptions like Dawn of War Two, where they're actually almost unrelated, mm-hmm. right? Almost, um, <laughs> <laughs> completely unrelated. Um, but, but you know, for the most part, when we're talking about these things, the you know the multiplayer is an extension of the single player game, right? So I, I don't know. I, I just think that that's a bizarre thing to hold up there and say that because strategy games are about the intellectual challenge of solving systems and dealing with resource allocations and whatever, that somehow that naturally means that they're poorer storytelling vehicles than a guy standing over the barrel of a gun. I don't know. Well, I, I just I'm, I'm convinced. I don't know. I just I see it as as a problem of you know authorship, I guess. Um, where where the first person shooter, the the story, the story has to be told to you. Um, otherwise, you're basically playing as like serious Sam or something in skirmish mode. Um, but in in a strategy game. Oh damn it! See, this is the problem. I, I think I just backed myself into a corner. Well, how much of well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. How much is that issue of authorial point of view? From the, the point of view in a strat in a shooter, you are something. You are right. a character. Yes. You are yes. either third you can person or first person. Story. But right. in a strategy game, it's often not quite clear who you are. are yes. You God? Are you a general? Are you the president? What are you? And I think that. Is I mean, sacrifice. You are a person. Um, you're given a name and a character, but you also become more of a unit than an actual actor. Right. And there's a transition right. there, and I think that is the. So but therefore, that's the emphasis. Not, that's that's a, but just, I not I wouldn't say that that's a necessary component of strategy games. No. And you know, earlier talking about right. how even the even the right. most 
casual hat tip towards characterization can make the difference between being invested and not being invested. Yeah. And then I tried to, you know, drag us into a pit by talking about JRPGs. Yes, well, it'd be the terrible pit, one I've avoided for much of my adult <laughs> life. But uh, I think by the end of the show, I'll get snared in yet again. So if I buy Harvest Moon again, or something like Harvest Moon, that was not a good experience. I, I won't make you buy Harvest Moon. I know, you're going to make me buy a PSP so I can play <laughs> Battle of Altoona or whatever. Uh <laughs> I think a, a tradition, a traditional RTS campaign that I enjoyed. I'm just trying. I can't quite figure out why this is. Actually, I'm going to compare it. I'm going to compare two strategy RTS campaigns: one which worked for me and one which didn't. One that worked: Age of Mythology, very traditional RTS campaign, but it worked in many ways because it did tie into all these you know myths that were out there. You did have a hero character with all the hero tropes, um, and all the tutorials kind of made sense because you were a tutorial for every civilization building up towards one large battle. So it could stretch it out forever, and it never felt artificial. Then I go to yeah. then I go to the RTS campaign for Rise of Legends. Rise of Legends is a great game uh, from Big Huge Games, and they brought in from Rise of Nations, they had that whole Conquer the World map in Rise right. of Nations, which was great. They put that into Rise of Legends, but you could only play in that mode in the story-based campaign. It's one mm-hmm. of the very best things of Rise of Nations. They stuck in this horribly written, horribly acted, story-based campaign in a world that made no sense. Mm. <laughs> you know, one side was, you know, these uh, Renaissance inventors, and apparently they had diplomatic relations with these uh, Arabian Knights-type people, but they never shared any technology or anything, so they're all completely artificially different, something you really couldn't get away with uh, in, like, a Command & Conquer game or even... Uh, an Age of Mythology game, unless you could say, well, the Norse are so far away, so they're going to have different gods. So one campaign really worked for me, uh, the Age of Mythology campaign, well-written, well-plotted, though very, very traditional. Uh, and the Rise of Legends campaign, even though it had this great mechanic uh, from Rise of Nations, it was completely squandered. Uh, the missions didn't make any sense, the world didn't make any sense, and the storytelling was terrible. Um, so does it then you think of RTS campaigns that you know, that have this dichotomy for you, one that really, really works, uh, surprisingly. Like I said, the Age of Mythology one so traditional, I should have hated it, uh, but I didn't. And one that should have worked because it had a great mechanic, like the Conquer the World system and Rise of Legends, but fell down for very traditional storytelling reasons. Not to get not to get this off track, but just based on what you, what you we said, aren't I, even on we aren't even on track. So you just we don't even have a track. <laughs> well, okay, I guess. Uh, Hearing you talk about the, the difference between those two games, I guess I sort of latched on to uh, voice acting. Mm. I mean, to what degree is voice acting? Because, I mean, really, in a strategy game, the voice is going to be your primary connection to the character. Um, aside from moving it around maybe on the map and having it kill things, it's going to be what it says, you know, who says what. Um, and I guess, I mean, you know, the first Dawn of War, um, not a very good story, not a very good campaign. I actually really liked it though because it was just I thought it was so well acted if a bit over the top but that's that's Warhammer 40k right right, um, right exactly yeah. the, the voice acting and the the characterizations were so spot on you know the, the space marines were cold and distant uh, well spoken but you know nobody's friend they weren't really good guys uh, the imperial guard were obviously you know just trying their best but they were hopeless cannon fodder and all that all that comes through the characterizations and the voice. And 
when, when I think on my fa- on, on my favorite RTS games, I, th- I think it's uh, RTS game story um, stories. It's voice acting that really sticks out in my head. The mysteries had the same thing going on. The, the mm-hmm. great narrator. Um, so for me, I, I think voice is maybe the single most crucial aspect of getting me involved, getting me connected. I, I think that really, I, I don't disagree at all. I think voice acting in a strategy game is absolutely critical because most of the time you don't want uh, a giant cutscene. You don't want to be trying to read quest text or something like that. Any of the ways other kinds of games tend to give you um, that kind of narrative feedback. Um, but I think really it just comes down to commitment, right? I mean, honestly, you know, the reason you have good voice acting in those games is because somewhere along the line, somebody said, Hey, you know what? We actually think the story element's important. So let's put some budget behind voice acting. Let's actually give the guys who are writing those lines some time. Let's have them actually talk to the scenario developers so that they're connected, right? And, and I really think you can sort of draw a line in the sand and say, this day and age, 80% of the games that get released in the strategy genre kind of just give lip service to that. Mm-hmm. And 20% actually put some resources behind it. And and ultimately, I think that's the major distinction, right? They either care or they don't. Is it they don't care? I mean, do you oh, think, that, I think, it's, I think the strategy designers don't care about story? They don't understand story. Well, I think some of them don't. I mean, look at the guys from, uh, look at the guys from Ironclad. Right? They quite explicit. They, the whole reason they didn't do a single player campaign was they were like, eh, we just don't think it's that important. That's not mm-hmm. what we're building. Right. The same thing with Demigod, right? There's no, there's no storyline there. There's, there's flavor text. And the flavor text is actually really good. Like, if you ever actually read through all the character descriptions and flavor text and backstories for all the different demigods, it's actually really entertaining and quite well written. Right. Um, surprisingly so for a game that never makes you actually look at any of that. So, yeah, I do think that there is a, there is a real distinction. There are some people out there who are designing systems that are fundamentally multiplayer systems, and then they put AI in them in order right. to provide single-player experiences. Um, and then there are people who say, hey, we've got a great story to tell, and it's a big epic story that involves lots of big battles, so it just happens to be a strategy game. I, no, I, no, I'm, just, I'm wondering, what are, we, what are we going to make of a game like Homeworld? Because um, I, I think that's an interesting game, because um, for me, it, it works really well as, as a strategy game. But without, without being very heavy on cutscenes, and without being even very heavy on talking... Um, for some reason, that game really succeeds in sort of casting the spell and making me feel like I have to get this fleet of my people. Um, you know, I, I am Bill Adama. You know, I have <laughs> right, to get my right. people to their new homeworld. Um, even though, for, mo- for the most part, it's just very quiet, and the game is very quiet. These are very quiet, quiet acknowledgments, you know, as your unit sort of murmuring into the microphone, you know, yes, sir. Um, right. But for the most part, it's just watching this tiny fleet of ships against the black of space. And, um, well, because we're not on the conference call, I can say this. It's very compelling. <laughs> it is. It is. But but that actually is a case where the nature of the story that's being told, which in that case is really your story more than some story they're making you listen through, right? Right. Because um, you, you're feeling – you're very much driving that storyline around. Um it's appropriate, right? That's that's the key there is that the level of dialogue, the level of commitment that they put into it is appropriate for what's happening. I mean, look at look at a game like uh, um, 
uh, DEFCON, right? There's no story in DEFCON. It's entirely a multiplayer experience, but they've committed to doing a few things there to really enhance the atmosphere to make the telling of your story really compelling, right? That sound design is brilliant in that game. Yeah, um, you know, now that I think that. about it, they're, they're very similar, the same sort of sound design. They, that's that's, that's why I can immediately thought that. Very sparse. Um, but but that to me, that's just really good aesthetics as opposed to being good narrative design, right? I, I agree completely that it's brilliantly done. So going back to the issue of why, why do strategy games so often have trouble with, with creating a story, I, I, another thought occurred to me um, is the nature of getting involved with characters. Um, is that antithetical to strategy games where hmm. – um, Something that drives me crazy is, and it's totally irrational, I will get involved with um, just some squad on the map or something. Um, and for some reason, I will anthropomorphize it. And I'll be like, no, I'm going to take care of those guys. They're going to get through this battle. I totally do the it'll, same it'll thing. It'll happen in Relic games. That's the worst. Uh, like, I'll identify with an infantry squad in Company of Heroes. And I'll be like, these guys can't die. And they hit an MG42. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm torn up by it. The The problem is that for a strategy game really really to work and have good flow you've got to just be able you've got to be able to just sort of get the job done right just sort of get into it get your units moving you know um make sacrifices that need to be made right. story is about preserving characters and taking care of friends and everything um and that doesn't fit that doesn't fit in well with the nature of a strategy game and if they make a unit like mission critical um, then it just turns into an escort mission. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're onto something there, which is that for many traditional strategic genres, for you know the the classic battle scene, or whatever, um, that that over attachment to a single unit is a liability. Are there is there any hope in the horizon? I mean, look at Supreme Commander Two, and one of the big things that Chris Taylor, of all people, is pushing is that. <laughs> It is giving you sense of demigod, you know, gas-powered game thing. It has great backstory, uh, but no real story to it. Um, you look at uh, the original Supreme Commander, which did have a story and didn't make a whole lot of sense, uh, no matter how rich the world was. But apparently, one of the big things, I guess this happens when you have Square uh, as your publisher, is he wants Subcom 2 to have a real story to it, um, a real, you know, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau brothers fighting or whatever story of, you know, blood and betrayal and robot sex or whatever <laughs> happens in Supreme well, Commander. I'm interested. Blood, betrayal, and robot sex? Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> when I get mugs, that's going to be on yours. Your mug's going to have that on it. Uh, sign you up for robot sex. Um, is there hope in the horizon? Um, is... Or is this just some last gasp for? Uh, they have the continuation of the Command and Conquer series this year. StarCraft Two is going to have you know three separate editions with three separate campaigns. So clearly they haven't given up. Is this something strategy gamers have gotten used to? Is this like a something you have to have? Uh, I don't think you have to have the little story based mission campaign because we've seen if you're triple A triple A game. Well, I mean, so you just dismiss. Sins of a Solar Empire it's not and Demigod out of hand. It's not a triple A title. Demigod's not a triple A title. They're great well, games. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm there, but I mean Sins of a Solar Empire is targeting a very niche audience and limited public limited budget. Made millions of dollars and I'm thrilled for them because it's a wonderful, wonderful game. Uh but for a mass audience, you know, 
Uh, right. Thinking of subcom, Phantom Kong. I mean, as you could, as far as strategy game mass audiences go. Well, and the and the problem is there's that depressingly low number of people who actually play the multiplayer mode, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to give something to the people who played StarCraft for the story. And I would say that was probably most of the people of these fond memories of StarCraft are people who have fond memories of Rainer and Kerrigan and that whole crew, and right. not necessarily Battle.net. Yep, I yeah. think that's totally fair. I think that's totally fair. And I actually, I'm looking forward to see what they do with it, right, in StarCraft 2. I really am. Um, so, and, and as, as much as plenty of other gamers have lamented the, what do you mean we're gonna have to buy the game three times? You know, whatever. <laughs> um, I, you know, hey, if that means that they turn Chris Metzen or whoever's, lo- whoever's actually doing the story on it loose to maybe do some really interesting stuff with that, hey, I'm all for it. I think yeah. that's great. Sort of, but I mean, remember that they're saying what? That each of these games is going to have like 30 missions or something like that, right? Very large campaigns for each faction. And I got to be honest, by the time I finished the first StarCraft, I had had my fill of single player, you know, RTS gaming. Well, we don't have any idea how long they're going to be or any of that stuff. No, that's true. 30 missions in Dawn of War 2 was an afternoon with a beer. This is true. Uh, not all mission lengths are created equal. So any last words on this? So we wrap up before we send Julian off to Azeroth. I, I think I think that, you know, you sort of asked this in a depressing way. Like, is there any hope? I think I think, you know, I think gamers in general are expressing their appreciation for good storytelling in games, period. Right. Whether that's Mass Effect or Bioshock or an RTS or whatever. Um, whether it's on a handheld or a PC game, I think people, I think gamers are voting with their pocketbooks to a certain extent that story does matter and it's not just about mechanics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've given some good examples here of games that, um, are coming out or recent, have recently come out that have really done at least something interesting with story. So I don't think, I don't think it's depressing. I think, uh, I think we're in a pretty healthy period for that. For strategy games? Well, for stories and strategy. Oh, for stories in general. How about, I mean, stories and strategy <laughs> yeah. games. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think for me, what, what gives me hope, I guess, is the the possibility of more sort of player-driven narrative. Um, not something I'm, not, I'm wildly you know fond of, but my 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 ideal marriage would be a really interesting setting, you know, a good a good narrative hook, and then a game where I can get. Involved with my with my units and my characters the way I do when I play like close combat for instance right. where I really do feel like I'm leading a group of men through you know a war zone and and for me I think that that's all I really want I, I get more involved with those stories than I ever do with something that's told through just scripted events um, close combat over company of heroes you know any day of the week um, so I don't I don't I think there's too much emphasis placed on story perhaps. But I think there's there's a lot of room for for good setups for a game. You know, a good a good a good setting, a good idea. There we go. Good setting, good ideas. Uh, we'll talk about player driven narratives probably in a future uh, podcast. We can talk about some of the favorite stories we have created in our games. Uh, yeah, it'll be three hours long. Absolutely. And the whole thing is going to sound like this one time at Bandcamp. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find a way to make it interesting. Heads up to uh, listeners. We are, this was episode 49, which means we are coming up on the one year anniversary of Three Moves Ahead. So Jay Leno gets the show now? (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, which we'll be celebrating in episode 53 at the end of February. Though it is self-indulgent, I will admit I never thought uh, I would make it this long, uh, certainly not on a weekly schedule. We haven't missed a single week, which is actually which is quite astonishing, astonishing. given that that means that Troy has only missed like one episode and the rest of us have missed 12. I've missed two episodes. I've missed two oh. episodes. Um, so this is uh, pretty much a big deal for me. I want to celebrate it with some fan service. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a bit of a bit of a clip show. So I want listeners to send in their favorite. Uh, just email me, TroyGotGoodfellow at gmail dot com. Their favorite uh, three moves ahead moments, uh, Bruce Garrickisms that you enjoyed, your favorite guests, favorite topics. Uh, let's f- keep an emphasis on the positive. Don't tell us <laughs> I suck. Uh, so go through your archive, go through and say, you know, I liked it when Julian said he wanted to have sex with robots. And then I'll find that clip and I'll play it and we'll talk some about it. Uh, this will probably be the only anniversary show I ever do because it is self-indulgent. But hey, you can give me this, right, guys? Yes, we can give you that. Absolutely. And that is uh, for episode 53 we'll be doing that. Next week, we have no topic set, and the episode may go up a little bit earlier because I will be out of town uh, next Monday night, which is our usual recording night. Um, so next week, the show will be up online probably a little bit earlier than usual. And once again, send in your suggestions for favorite moments uh, on Three Moves Ahead, or you can just write me a nice fan letter and uh, all that stuff. Uh, Julian and Rob, so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me, as always. Did that. Everyone have a good week. Good night. Good night.